Wooshka Studios. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains coarse language and adult themes and is not suitable for younger ears. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. You're probably familiar with that famous quote. Yes, it's Shakespeare, from his play Julius Caesar. It's a speech loved and adored by actors through the generations, and by Vincent Dempsey, who in the late 1950s, on a warm night in a park in Warwick, hopped up onto a tree stump and dramatically recited those lines to a group of strangers. Vince was celebrating. He had just raped a teenage girl in front of shocked onlookers and now asked his audience to lend him their ears. Everyone in his hometown of Warwick knew that Vince was trouble. He was scary and unpredictable. But over time, he was growing into something far worse. At the dawn of the 1960s, he would be involved in drug dealing, rapes and police bashings, all on the path to murder. But Shakespeare? Why Shakespeare? I think I've just figured out why. From Wooshka Studios, I'm Matthew Condon, and this is Ghostgate Road. In this episode, I continue my quest to uncover the truth about Vince Dempsey one of the most sadistic killers Australia has ever produced. Nobody's been going to say anything because you could end up like the rest of them. Was it Vincent took him for the drive? Well, the last time he was ever seen alive was in that holding car of Vincent's. I didn't know anything about all this fucking pillin' and all this fucking shit until I got out. I didn't, I just, I just chewed bones up. They're hungry enough, I just eat bones and all. A lot has changed in Warwick in the past 55 years. Justice is eternal, and so too are the rights of victims. His body has never been found. I'm driving around Warwick and it just struck me as really interesting how there are so many touchstones to O'Dempsey's past still here, still so well defined, um, uh, almost to the point where you can see back 50 years in time to the movements of this man, uh, this creature of habit who kept coming back here to Warwick, the call of Warwick, and the myths he made for himself en route. Every time I visit the township of Warwick, with its rowdy pubs and beds of thorny rose bushes down the centre of Palmerin Street, the rumours about Vince are as pungent as the flowers. Like the day I visited Les Cutmore and learned about the time he was sexually assaulted by Vince in the milk bar all those years ago. Les and his wife Lynn 
rattled off a string of long-held Vince rumours. What about um, the rumour that's been around forever that Vince has got his own private graveyard? Did he bury him up? He always buried his victims standing, you know, upright. Did your father tell you that story? Yeah, it's been going on for years. The most persistent gossip was that Vince had killed a man and buried him in the wall of the dam. Then we started, you know, started to put two and two together. Well, it wasn't long after they went missing that Brian Bolton wrote the story in the the Sunday Truth about the bodies in the dam. They Dempsey actually read it in the newspaper and said to Diane O'Dempsey, and he said, you dumbass, this is about me. I'm the criminal in, in Warwick, and I'm the one that's supposed to put these bodies in the dam. It was the stuff of the movies, straight out of Hollywood and onto the big silver screen at King's Theatre in Warwick. It's August 1954, and the film The Wild One has premiered at King's, literally a block away from where Vince lived in Stewart Avenue. The movie is all about outlaw motorcycle gangs, hooliganism and lawlessness, and stars Marlon Brando. It causes controversy around the world. Local authorities fretted that the film might trigger gang violence and juvenile delinquency. As it happens, The Wild One depicts anti-social gangs of disaffected teenagers at the time, who in Australia call themselves bodgies for the males and widgies for their female counterparts. There were similar subcultures around the globe, such as the American Greaser and the UK Rocker. They were aggressive and cared little for rules. Their philosophy was everything that Vince embodied. Violent, without conscience, a rebel, a grenade with a loose pin. It's eerie to think that if you stood outside Vince's childhood house in Stewart Avenue, you would have been able to see the rear of King's Theatre, just a couple of hundred metres away, and its red neon sign. You can almost see him passing through the foyer of the theatre, settling into the stalls, and hearing a woman ask Brando's character what was he rebelling against, and Brando answering, what do you got? Hey, Johnny, hey, get a load of this. Crazy. Hey, somebody tell me what that means. BRMC. What does it mean? Black Rebels Motorcycle Club. <laughs> Isn't that cute? <laughs> hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? <laughs> I'm thinking this is the moment, hypnotised by the silver screen, teeming with motorcycles and fist fights, that Vince began to idolise Marlon Brando. <laughs> A few short years after Marlon Brando thundered into Warwick, Vince had been charged with several offences, including the indecent dealing of a young girl, and as we learned in episode one, he had raped a 14-year-old boy with an ice cream in a totally unprovoked attack. In Warwick... Vince relished in his reputation as someone to fear. But he attracted attention 
for other reasons. Vince became a full-blown bodgie. The growth of this American-inspired subculture caused fear and alarm in conservative post-war Australia. As the subculture grew, reports into their anti-social attitude and peculiar way of dressing began appearing on Australian television. Here is one example from the 1950s. I'm a bodgie. I'm a witchy, so what? A bodgie is a male with long hair and unusual clothes. A widgie is a female with short hair and unusual clothes. Unlike the rest of society, the male is usually the more colourfully, even exotically dressed. Mostly they're teenagers. Usually they come back to normal after 22. If they don't by then, sound the warning siren. Vince loved this culture. It was as if it had been created just for him. But this was Warwick, as rural and conservative as they come. It was cattle and rodeos and farms. It was work trousers and boots, and a pressed shirt and thin tie for church. Vince's new look certainly shocked the locals, as I discovered during my investigation. There was Les, who had boxed with Vince. He was kind of like the bodgies. He was a bodgie, mm. wasn't he? Vince? Yeah, yeah the bodgies and the Wednesday, the bodgies come out. Well, he was, yeah, he used to have those pants, I think, you the flare, uh, Le- leopard the, skin. the leopard skin pants. I can remember in leopard skin pants, yeah. I remember in the leopard skin pants. Tight, tight pants. They must have looked ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Oh, tight, real tight. Mm. Tight and stovepipe bottoms, as we used to call them. Then there was retired Queensland police detective Alan Marshall, who spent more than two years sifting through every aspect of Vince's life in the late 1970s when he thought he had Vince cold for the McCulkin murders. I visited Alan in his small, neat home, not far from the Queensland border at Tweed Heads. He made coffee, and sitting at the kitchen table, he remembered details of Vince and his bodgy crew back in the day. Raymond Vincent Tommy Allen, Desi Locke, all prowling about town in their bodgy gear. Tommy Allen used to wear outlandish clothes like uh, tiger skins and you know, leopard spot bloody things. And, but he stood out like a dog's balls, particularly in Warwick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With this sort of gear on. He'd gathered a few of the local toughs around him and everywhere they went, there was disruption. He hung out in a dim pool hall in Grafton Street. It was known as Much's Saloon not far from the town post office, and in a few short years had gone from a respectable billiard room with high metal press ceilings and bright lights to a dim hangout for degenerates. Few women entered. To locals, it was dangerous. It became Vince's lair. Vince was also the resident pool shark at the majestic Criterion Hotel in Palmerin Street, a two-storey brick pub with bars downstairs and accommodation upstairs. I visited the Criterion with Ron Smith, who knew Vince through the Catholic Church, school, and later socialising in pubs like these. Ron witnessed Vince's prowess with a pool cue. So was this the pool area originally? So it was right here. 
hasn't changed at all in oh, well, the new, t- new tables. Right, and Vince, Vince was king of the tables here. He was king of the tables. He was, he was king of this pub. <laughs> <laughs> Later, over coffee, Ron starts talking about the drug scene in Warwick in the early 1960s, and I learned something I'd never heard before. Um, because there was drugs involved in that. Um, so de- um, Vince was dealing drugs? Mm. Even in the early 60s? Mm, well, it was a known fact, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah see, the Criterion Royce, where yeah, yeah, we used to get, you could get it there any time you want. And was it mainly marijuana? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so he was a... Um, see, I'd, I'd never been involved with that type of thing. I, I was always shit scared because I mm. thought it would have chopped my head off. Um, but yeah. But it was known that if you wanted some marijuana, oh, yeah. you'd, you'd go to Vince. That's where it was, yeah. So, yeah. so he was uh, an early drug dealer. Yeah. A fledgling baby steps drug well, the dealer. Main, yeah, the, the, the main. Um, where was he getting his money from? This extraordinary claim is later confirmed by Warren Wazza McDonald, a longtime associate of Vince's. Wazza was known as Vince's apprentice and close confidant for almost 20 years. And in his younger days was the picture of a gangster on trainer wheels with his guns and rolls of money. But he moved out of the game and built a new life for himself. I asked him about Vince's early years and drugs. A childhood friend of Vince's in Warwick. We talked about his childhood and and teenage years and all the trouble he got into and the shit he got into and kicking at the cop nearly to death and... But he said that during that time, in the early 60s, Vince was dealing marijuana in Warwick. Right. And he said, you know, Vince sometimes worked out of the Mayfair, that in those early days, in the early 60s, if you wanted to get some dope, you went to Vince. Yes. Even as early as that, would that be right? Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I remember him, him telling me he used to swap the marijuana for heroin. And fucking, he'd end up with a big bag full of fucking dope and get a tiny little bag of fucking heroin. Right, so he transitioned from, well, he, did, he, he bought his heroin with his dope. Yeah, and then, then traded off. But see, most of the moles were on the heroin, see? Mm. But was he growing even back in the, in the early days? Oh, look, I, I assume so. Mm. Because he, he seems to fall back on what he knows through his life, doesn't he? Yeah. Like, he's done a lot of studying while he's been in locked up, you know, like being a horticultural botanist and all that sort of shit. Yeah. And he's done all these certificates and everything while he was in the clinic. And is there any doubt now that he was actually studying to be a master in how to grow dope? Oh, there's no doubt at all. <laughs> that's a fucking given, that one. These anecdotes from Ron and Wazza offer a far richer insight than I'd ever imagined into Vince's depravity as he moved out of his teens and into his early 20s. As for his development as a sexual predator, it erupted in his bodgy period. Not only was he dealing dope, but he was trying his hand as a pimp. According to locals, Vince was running a couple of prostitutes out of rooms upstairs in the Mayfair Hotel, not far from the Criterion. It was a bold entrepreneurial move in a town as small as Warwick. During our stroll downtown... Ron's memories came flooding back. Yeah, this used to be the entrance to the hospital. It's been revamped, but it used to be the main entrance to the bar, and there used to be a bar in there. So this was the Mayfair? This was the Mayfair. Yep, yep. yep. on the I court. I think they still call it. It used to be a Mayfair car. I don't think the Mayfair. Name Mayfair on the outside, and we'd be still up there. And um, 
Vince ran some girls out of there. He did. He did. Yeah, and then you published the whole corner. Yeah. And it used to include the PAB, where that open sign is. There used to be another door. There was a door here, another door there, and this was like a okay. window, we used to call it, where you sit and watch the birds. Yeah. It's, it was a big pub as well. It was yeah. a big pub. It nearly backs into the criterion at the back. There's some. There's a couple of shops between it. Yeah, but he had, he had a room up there with a, with a couple of girls. Yeah. 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 Vince was dealing drugs, he was bludging off hookers. It was just the beginning. He got worse. A lot worse. Small towns like to keep their secrets close to their chest. In the case of Vince, though, almost everybody who crossed paths with him has a story. And none were more shocking than the one told to me by a former Warwick local who chose to remain anonymous but would like to be known only as Richard. Richard was several years younger than Vince, but certainly knew of him and his reputation. Richard vividly remembers attending a dance at the little village of Yangan, outside Warwick. When Vince rocked up in his bodgy gear, Richard says he looked ridiculous, but nobody dared laugh. Uh, Of a weekend, uh, I and a few friends would often... uh go to a, a local pub and sneak in the side door and uh, buy a few what we used to call long necks and uh, sneak out of town somewhere and find a nice quiet place to sit on a log or whatever and just drink a few beers and tell a few lies and then go back into town. Richard and his mates found a spot dense with trees and shrubs where they could drink their illicit beers without being noticed. I was driving, it was my car. We pulled in off the Bitchman Road and then in onto a gravel track and got in amongst some trees and shrubs and thought it was fairly quiet. But we weren't there very long and another car came into the same track and uh, pulled in behind us. And uh, two local louts whom I vaguely knew and a young woman whom I recognised but didn't know hopped out of the car, followed by Vince O'Dempsey. Uh, she would have been a little older than us. We would have been 17 or 18, is my guess. The two would have been maybe 18 or 19, but still, you know, still a young woman. And quite honestly, I used to see her around town and she hung around with the less than desirables, shall I say. Uh, hung around with a bit of a rough mob. That's interesting because there was a, a rough mob um, in Warwick at the time and it Mr. Vincent O'Dempsey was um, probably the leader of the pack there, was he not? Yes, he was. Yes, there was a bit of a rough influence. Uh, Mid-60s was getting towards the end of the bodgy era, but there were certainly some of that ilk in the town. Yeah. Yeah. And so Vince turns up. Was it? How did, how did you, you and your mates feel about that? I mean, he had a reputation for extreme oh. violence. What were you, do you remember your thoughts? It must have been quite... Well, it was. I... I uh, we did, I didn't speak to the other three at that moment, but I know I, I, I uh, got very. I became very apprehensive very quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And what did Vince ask of you? He, he turned up and he. Um, what happened? Well, 
apparently they didn't have any beer and uh, Vince straight away asked us for our beer and they they began drinking it mm. and what happened with the young woman something happened after that after a very short space of time Vince roughly grabbed her hustled her into the nearby bushes and shrubs and from the uh, sounds and and protestations he was clearly he clearly raped her it was just stop Vince no Vince words to that effect yeah and there wasn't any question in your mind that he was um he was physically raping this young woman no doubt in my mind and no doubt in the mind of the other three chaps who were with me too because we were looking at each other thinking well I don't know I guess they were thinking the same as I was thinking this bastard's raping her and uh, it was obvious yeah I mean even if you were you and your mates were worldly young men even for your age at that point something like that must have, mm. must have been a shock it was very we were <laughs> yeah yeah I was shocked for sure yeah and could you at all see see them physically or was it just the sounds no, no, we couldn't actually see them because it was a dark night, yeah. for starters. And he moved four to five, six metres away from where we were sitting around. Yeah. I think he came out first. Yeah. It was all over in a matter of a few minutes. And then very soon after, I guess the poor young lady was, you know, redressing herself or whatever. She came out a minute or two later anyway, after Vince. With a, and I remember he had a bottle of beer in his hand. I even remember that. There you go. And uh, he starts reciting uh, Mark Antony's oration, which, again, I don't know what the other fella, the three fellas thought of that, but I was just, I thought that was bizarre that a man could switch on to grabbing a young woman, take her into the bushes, rape her, come out as if nothing had happened, as if he'd done nothing more than go into the bushes for a leak, comes out, Hops on a stump and starts uh, reciting Mark Antony's oration. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. That famous speech goes. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. Less than a year before the screening of Marlon Brando's The Wild One at King's Picture Theatre in 1954, the movie house had also screened a film version of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. It, of course, featured Mark Antony's famous speech, and wouldn't you know it, none other than Marlon Brando played Mark Antony. Is it a coincidence that Vince is quoting a famous speech uttered up on the silver screen by Brando? Had he taken on Brando's persona in some weird act of idol worship? Richard only knows what he saw. At this point, Vince is clearly out of control. And still, he found another level of debauchery and violence. It was a cold Saturday night on June 6, 1959, and off-duty Warwick Police Sergeant Francis Joseph Tuhill was wandering down Grafton Street near the centre of town. Just around the corner from the seedy pool hall Vince hung out in, it was Vince and his mate Desi Locke. Tuhill asked them what they were up to and was told, 
keep your fucking nose out of our business. Two Hill kept walking and soon heard footsteps behind him. He suffered a blow to the back of his head and fell to his knees, kicked in the back of the skull and the back. Two Hill begged them to stop. They didn't. As we go further down towards the back of the building, we're getting closer to the point where this police officer stumbled upon O'Dempsey and Locke, accused them of stealing a bicycle, um, threatened them, and uh, it was the worst thing he ever did to threaten Vincent O'Dempsey. O'Dempsey had a legendary hatred of police, even at that point, and uh, the officer was bashed so badly that when police went to pay Vincent a visit, in Stewart Avenue, they found his boots and there was a scalp and hair tissue found attached to O'Dempsey's shoes. Vincent Desi was soon picked up by the cops and charged. It was big news in Warwick, a merciless attack on a police officer, but it was hardly a surprise to those who knew Vince. Wasser McDonald says Vince often brought up the incident. Did Vince ever talk about bashing that copper in Warwick? Yeah, absolutely. What did he say about that? That every time he walked up the street and that arsehole would come towards him, he'd go across the other side of the street. The copper would? The copper would, he, was, he feared him. And Vince was satisfied with that? Oh, he loved that. Loved it? Loved it. Vincent Desi's trial was held in the criminal court in Brisbane before Justice Hanger. To defend their son, Vince's parents hired legendary criminal barrister Dan Casey. Casey was a devout Catholic and loved rugby league and boxing, so he was a good fit for Vince. It did little good. Vince and Desi, described in court as standover men, were found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. They would have to serve at least two and a half years before being eligible for parole. Vince had been pushing the limits for years. Now he was off to the big house, Bogger Road Jail, in Brisbane. His apprenticeship was complete. Vince was now a serious criminal, and he was going to spend a few years with some of the most vile and hardened criminals the state of Queensland had to offer. When you talk about Bogger Road in the 1960s, all roads lead back to a juvenile detention centre called the Westbrook Farm Home for Boys in Toowoomba, west of Brisbane, up on the Great Dividing Range. Westbrook, or the Brook, took in truants, thieves, delinquents, and held them until they were 18 years old. But instead of reforming them, it became the living embodiment of hell. Over the years, survivors of Westbrook have shared their horror stories in books and television documentaries. Westbrook wasn't shut down until 2012. Set in ideal surroundings, just outside Toowoomba on the Darling Downs, is the Westbrook Farm Home, where delinquent boys of the state are given into the care of the farm supervisor. It was a torture chamber. What they did to the kids in there was unbelievable. Took me into the uh, <clears throat> into the office and uh, 
maybe, you know, give me gear off and uh, give me across the back and across the backside. Very scary for a, for a 11-year-old, yeah. Being taken away from your family environment and going up to that environment. You know, it, it makes me sick to think that it was probably Westbrook that caused them to do that. The boys are taught every branch of farming, both agricultural and dairying, and are kept so busy that they do not find time to get into mischief through idleness. The discipline is strict, but kindly. Westbrook's unique quality was that it became a nursery for a generation of future criminals. And many of those friendships forged in the nightmare of Westbrook continued on the outside. Many notorious criminals, and you will meet them as we go on with this story, first met in Westbrook. Then once they were out, they graduated to Brisbane's Boggo Road Jail. Vince, sentenced to five years in Boggo, was about to meet a bunch of former Westbrook boys, all with their own skills in robbery, safe-cracking, shoplifting, sexual assault and worse. One long-term criminal, Gary Lawrence, knew all about the Westbrook boys. Lawrence was a legend in Boggo. He held the Queensland record for the most number of years spent behind bars by someone who had never been charged with murder. I had been intrigued by the character of Lawrence for years. I admit I felt a bit intimidated by Lawrence given everything I'd heard about him. But one day I telephoned him on his farm on Queensland's Sunshine Coast and he invited me to visit. It's a beautiful property tucked away in the hills and Gary has done a great job with the upkeep, the fencing and has a few houses on his land. He occasionally runs some cattle. He appears in his working shorts and blue Jackie House singlet and has a larrikin grin on his face. For all the trouble he's seen, he is kindly and generous and great company. He told me about the Brook Boys and how they ended up in Bogger Road. Yeah, a lot of them were fucking this. It ruined my life. Most of half of them bloody anything small was sexually assaulted and all that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it, it was made, It was a terrible place that Westbrook, you know. That, that I never ever went there, you know. But I mean, I see a lot of kids that, that come from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, really terrible, mate. See, I think what happened to them there. And and just yeah. just created criminals. Do you think? Oh, well, they, 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 the Dolly Dodgy, was his name, the run the place there. I mean, they used to tie him to posts and make him run around and around in circles and bell him and, oh, Christ almighty. And they even had, had the bigger crims chasing the, the other kids while they had them basic chasing them and bringing them back and all that kind of stuff, mate. You know what I mean? You created it. was just a violent, rotten joint, mate. Fair thinking. Terrible. And a lot of them washed up in Bogger Road. Oh, most of them. <laughs> most of them did. Lawrence explained to me the routine that Vince had to endure during his time in jail. And even that situation in Bogger Road back in them days was, was, was really terrible too, locked in cages and in little cells of shit buckets and Christ Almighty, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you think of it, you know, I wonder so many people coming out there killing each other and all that stuff, you know? In the cell, you had a bed without sheets and a shit tin. And then there was the food. Oh, shocking, mate. A lot of it was stews on, and, and all that stuff, you know? You know, anything that was kind of cheap, you know what I mean? Mm. And they had mush in the morning. They just, they like porridge, they used to call it mush. It was sweet, it was uh, going off the floor. They, they kept in bags, cheap from 
If you didn't understand everything Gary said, don't worry. He speaks in what is known as Australian strine, or language filled with slang and sayings picked up through experiences we can't begin to imagine. But his meaning is clear. Bogger Road Jail was a nightmare. Cold in winter, hot in summer, the food inedible, the conditions atrocious, and the treatment of prisoners subhuman. In Bogo, Vince was assigned to the boot shop. On the weekends, prisoners could mingle with other inmates, play cards and have a yarn. For Vince, his jail stint for bashing the Warwick copper was the opposite of time wasted. In fact, those who knew him in Bogger Road during those two and a half years attested that he used his time to almost completely reinvent himself. Gone was the brash, violent, bodgy, layering about in leopard-skin pants and mesh T-shirts, bringing attention to himself with his dress and his disdain for authority. By the time Vince got out of jail in late 1962, he was a fit, hardened, wised-up gangster, ready to kill at will. He had shed his skin again. In late 1962, Vince returned home to Warwick a very different animal. Broke and with a burgeoning criminal record, he got a job on the construction of the Leslie Dam out at Sandy Creek, about 11 kilometres from downtown Warwick. For all the dam workers, it was tough, back-breaking work, out in the middle of nowhere, and a lot of them lived on site, but at least it was honest money. At the dam... Vince met Raymond Vincent Tommy Allen, 22, who had been partial to the bodgy lifestyle himself. He was short, five foot six, but had a larrikin streak. Like Vince, he wore leopard skin pants when he went out on the town. Like Vince, he played recreational rugby league on the weekends. He even set Vince up on a blind date. That's when Vince met Margaret, a local girl who would go on to become his first wife. Margaret soon learned a few things about Vince. Over time, she grew to fear him. This is Margaret being cross-examined by lawyer Gary Forno, who you met in episode one at a coronial inquest many years later. You told us before that you considered O'Dempsey had a large ego, was egotistical. I didn't actually mean it that way. He has a male ego, which every male seems to have. Well, what do you mean by a male ego? Well, he likes to think he's good-looking, attractive to women. That is what I meant by ego. Well, further on you said, yes, and he tried to murder me once too. You've told it of an occasion where he used violence towards you. Did he threaten to kill you on that occasion? He didn't threaten, but I was very frightened at the time. What? Frightened for your life to that extent? Just frightened of being hurt in some way.
Vince had been locked away in prison for more than two years, his psychopathic nature bottled up and controlled by the routines of jail. A cluster of his madness was gathering ahead of steam. That broke on the first weekend of March 1964, when police discovered that the Piggott & Co. store in Palmeron Street and Creighton & Co., auctioneers and real estate agents, had been broken into and robbed. Watches, clocks and jewellery had been taken from Piggott's. Three safes were lifted from Creighton's. Piggott's had been in Palmeron Street forever and was known and loved by generations of locals. Were the thieves men from out of town? Who would violate a Warwick institution? I have stood in front of what was the old store. The Piggott's name is still there, high up near the roof of the building. It was a decent heist for a small town. Through some excellent police work, detectives traced tyre marks at the scene to the vehicle of a worker at Leslie Dam by the name of Gunter Janke. Janke shot through to Sydney in Vince's 1957 Holden Special sedan, taking some of the proceeds of the robbery with him. He left Vince's car at the wharves at the rocks near the southern end of the Harbour Bridge. Vince managed to hitchhike to Sydney, where he found his car. In it, he discovered one of the watches from the Piggott's heist. So he mailed it back to himself in Stewart Avenue, Warwick, just in case police pulled him over and discovered him with the incriminating evidence. He then drove back to Warwick. But people had been talking, and suspicions over the robbery fell on Vince. He was rounded up by police and questioned. How do we know so much about this long-forgotten case? Well, I can tell you, because long investigations like this one into Vince sometimes produce surprising finds, and if I hadn't done a public event for a book up on Queensland's Sunshine Coast a few years ago, I would never have met Kerry McGrath. Because as it turned out, Kerry's father was Jack McGrath, the Warwick detective who investigated the Piggott's robbery and we wouldn't have known any of the details of this small-town crime if Kerry hadn't stumbled across a copy of official case files in his father's papers. I called Kerry on the phone and asked him why his dad held on to the old documents. Well, I, I, I don't know, because police came and invented, spoke to him again in... Oh, maybe the 80s. That would have and been they came back, and they came back again in the 90s. Now, whether it was about Vince or what, I don't really know. Now, whether they left him with some of this stuff or he had it, I honestly don't know. So how come I've got some documents and some of them look original and they're signed and some aren't, some are like obviously copies. I've got absolutely no idea. They are genuine, like they're not a faked up. Police charged Vince with the robberies and some locals were going to have to appear as witnesses against him in court. As it stood, Vince was not going back to jail if he could help it. Vince's committal hearing was set down for June 30 and the witnesses... They never showed up in court. So the case against Vince evaporated. 
That Vince got away with the robberies did not change Officer Jack McGrath's opinion of a young Vince. Jack often talked to his son Kerry about the Warwick hooligan. My dad, he disliked Vince O'Dempsey. He would say he's evil. Mm. Vince had dodged a bullet and this close shave unsettled him. He quit his job at the dam and went to live briefly in Brisbane with Margaret near the end of 1964. They then moved briefly to Sydney, where Vince established his links with Sydney organised crime and became a gun for hire. He earned the admiration of one gangster in particular, Frederick Paddles Anderson, the unofficial godfather of Sydney organised crime. If you needed a job done, you could rely on Vince. And as Vince himself always said, business is business. Wazza McDonald says of Vince's friendship with Paddles. I'm trying to remember what you told me about that. How he loved tough guys. Yeah, because yeah, well, he, he was the godfather of the Sydney Underworld. And he was, he was the true godfather. That, that came from Vince as well. Um, and Dad. But uh, that came from Vince. Oh, Paddles. And he would have liked Vince. He, oh, he loved Vince. Why do you and, think? Oh, because Vince would go and do work for him. That work was contract killing. I'm not sure even Paddles Anderson knew what he had on his hands with the likes of Vince O'Dempsey. But his days as a Sydney gangster didn't last long. In November 1965, just as Margaret gave birth to their first child, Sharon, Vince was arrested and charged with being in possession of a firearm. As a convicted felon, he was sentenced to one year in jail. He would serve about six months. Shortly after his release from prison, Vince struck up a friendship with Brisbane crook Billy McCulkin, who was kicking around in Sydney at the time, and back in Brisbane in 1966, they hatched a plan to rob a safe from the Walton's department store in Fortitude Valley. Vince had learned the safe-cracking trade from the best in the business when he was in Bogger Road and was applying his new skills on the outside. They did the job, but someone ratted them out to then-corrupt Queensland detective Glenn Hallahan. Vince was sentenced to five years in Bogger Road. McCulkin spent one month on remand and was released. It was during his second tour of duty in Bogo, however, that Vince established relationships that would last the rest of his criminal career. It is where he met and became close to Gary Lawrence. I asked Gary when he first met Vince and he takes me back to Bogger Road Jail in Brisbane in 1966. Lawrence was already serving time there when Vince went in on the safe job conviction. Gary was in his early 20s. He'd been in and out of jail before being charged for a gang assault on a young male university student in a Brisbane park. The case, investigated by Detective Tony Murphy, was a front-page scandal. Here is Gary talking about when he first met Vince. Well, yeah, he came in the yard and straight away, you know, he made mates straight away, you know, the water finds the same level. Yes, had you ever heard of him before? No, I never, never no. fucking heard nothing. I didn't know anything about all this fucking killing and all this fucking shit and, until I got out. Inside, they gas-bagged and played cards. As Lawrence recalls... Well, that's, yeah, well, that's when yeah, shot in him in jail, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And, and I think they would have talked about it more kind of because he was in there for rape, shorty, and all that stuff. And, and shorty, you know, he was a mate of mine too in, in there, you know, but I mean, I was working in the bakehouse. So I wasn't in the yard 24-7 like they were, you know. Mm. I'd see him 
for an hour or two in the afternoon and we'd sit and laugh and fucking all that fucking shit and then and talk about nothing really, you know, so... Gary Lawrence also recalls a horrifying conversation he had with Vince during their time together in two jail. It was a passing chat that Gary has never been able to get out of his head. Vince told Gary that the devil had visited him in his cell and had spoken to him, but Vince couldn't work out what the devil was saying. Oh, one of the time in the nick there, this was in the, in the 60s, this would have been probably be getting near the end of his six years or something when he would reading all them, because he was all around Bibles, everything under his fucking arm around that time, you know, in the yard there. And he come and tell him he was dead said he fucking come down worried. He fucking was worried. He fucking did, he believed fucking that, that the devil was in there. I said, fair him. He said he was there. So Gary and Vince became close friends. Then convicted rapist Shorty Dubois gets on with Vince. And through Shorty, Vince gets to know Tommy Hamilton and Peter Hall and Keith Meredith. These men would form the nucleus of the notorious Clockwork Orange Gang. We'll learn more of their criminal activities soon. But Vince had joined a powerful alliance that would serve him well decades into the future. And when it came to Shorty, they would be bound for life by murder. Vince served his time and was released from prison in late 1970. By chance, Vince's friend Bob was released at exactly the same hour on exactly the same day as Vince. Both men walked out of jail together. This is what Bob told me about that haunting moment. I mean, you said that great line to me, that he came out a bright, shining monster, which is a great line. What do you think that second stretch in Volga Road for Vince... Um, it's probably the worst thing, literally, for society to have put a psychopath like that in Volga Road at that moment in his life, and he's going to come out as this totally, fully-fledged psychopath. Well, he, he was one before he went there. But what do you think Volga Road did to him? Oh, just like shit at home and all determined to, you know, break the law. Bob said that at this moment... Vince turned to him and said, Today is a black day for society. A monster had been unchained. Ghostgate Road is produced by Wooshka Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Visit ghostgateroad.com for additional material and a full list of credits and search for the official Ghostgate Road discussion group on Facebook. Facebook.